The opinions and views expressed in Dead Men Do Tell Tales and all affiliated media are Jordan and Nicole's and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of their training program or others working in the field of medical legal death investigation. everyone welcome to dead men do tell tales a podcast about forensic pathology related topics i'm nicole Kroom, and i'm jordan taylor and today we're going to be talking about a special topic with a guest speaker would you like to go ahead and introduce yourself uh, i'm mike and i'm a pathology resident at ubc in vancouver canada what's ubc uh the university of british columbia thank you <laughs> for all our all us dumb americans that don't know the, the canadian abbreviations of things <laughs> and mike got in contact with us through the dead men do tell tales uh gmail and he said that he would be interested in doing a topic with us so what got you interested in forensic pathology i think similar probably to a lot of people that go into pathology in general i realized during med school that i didn't love a lot of the sort of non-medicine parts of medicine, like, you know, having to figure out where people go after they leave the hospital and all the paperwork and that sort of stuff. And I realized that I like focusing on diagnosis and I guess anatomy and those sorts of things. So that led me to pathology. Um, and then, so I did a bunch of electives and I thought the, my experience at the ME's office in Calgary was pretty cool. Got to go out to the site of a plane crash with the ME and just sort of the experiences I had and the people I worked with um, led me to sort of finding it really interesting. And I think I'm pretty lucky that I figured that out fairly early. And yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. What year are you in residency? I'm in my uh, second year, I guess, starting third in July, though here in Canada, our pathology residencies are a little bit a year longer, I think, than they are in the US. We do five years here where our first year is sort of a basic clinical year. And then we do four years of uh, just, I guess, AP. Okay. Okay. And it's just anatomic pathology, no clinical pathology, right? Oh uh, yeah. We don't do clinical pathology. No. Versus in the U S if somebody just does anatomic pathology, it's just a three year long residency program. Um, okay. If you do anatomic and clinical pathology, it's a four year long program, but you get both board certs. So gotcha. We have something similar. We have something similar that's called general pathology. It's also five years, and those people do some of the cl clinical uh, path stuff. Um, but they're less popular training programs in terms of like people who go through them end up working in more rural centers because they'll like manage the labs and do that sort of stuff. But I think most people are interested in sort of going the subspecialty route, so they end up doing anatomical pathology. Cool. And is the death investigation system in Canada significantly different than that in the U.S.? My sense is that it's pretty similar in that every province, which is sort of like states that you guys have, um, has its own system. And then even between the medical examiner system and coroner system between provinces, they could still be different. For example, in B.C., uh, we have a coroner system, but the coroners aren't required to be uh, physicians versus other provinces like Ontario, they have a coroner system, but all of their coroners would be at least a general uh, practice physicians sort okay. of thing. So it's very varied. I think it's similar in the States. That's yep, exactly. Good description. <laughs> <laughs> Patchwork. <laughs> all right. And what got you, I know that you just said that you wanted, you were interested in talking about sudden infant death syndrome. So what made you interested in sudden infant death syndrome as a possible topic? I think sudden infant death syndrome is an interesting topic in that it sort of blends nicely into some of the work that a forensic pathologist does in terms of ruling things out as opposed to necessarily diagnosing. So people often turn to pathologists or forensic pathologists for an answer, but sometimes the answer is we don't know, which is sort of the undetermined cause of death. And I think SIDS is one of those examples where I guess we'll get into this a little bit later, but by definition, it's kind of a we don't know sort of a diagnosis. But being certain, being accurate, and saying we don't know at least rules out some other possible more sinister thing. So it's still important. And I think it sort of demonstrates that saying that we don't know and not having an answer is still a sort of important answer in, a, in itself. Cool. Nice. That was really well said. <laughs> All right. So before we officially get started, uh, just as we always do, Nicole and I are both drinking do we have this last time or two times ago so screwball which is the peanut butter flavored whiskey mixed with 
non-peanut butter flavored whiskey because that's just too strong. Yeah. Um, but it's very good. It is what we had last time because my dad said he had just listened to our COVID episode and he laughed really hard about us like <laughs> making a whiskey on whiskey cocktail. <laughs> As only we would. And Nicole had very generous pours, so this will probably get us through the entire episode. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Mike, do you want to do the honor and start us off with the definition of sudden infant death syndrome? Sure. So sudden infant death syndrome, uh, usually people refer to as SIDS as the acronym. It's a disease of unknown cause. So it's defined as an infant under the age of uh, one who dies and the death remains unexplained after a thorough case investigation, including performance of a complete autopsy examination of the death scene and a review of the clinical history. Uh, so I guess sort of in just simpler terms, it's, again, it's sort of a definition of, of we don't know, but we do know that it's not a number of sort of any diagnoses that we can easily identify, such as, you know, an injury or uh, other acute medical thing. Um, and so to change up a little bit, instead of Nicole diving into epidemiology, <laughs> I'm going to take the lead on that one this time. Some kind of the generic things with SIDS is that this... People often associate it with, you know, their child wakes up dead. Uh, it often occurs during sleep, and when they go to check on them in the morning, they can't wake them up. Often it happens between, like, midnight and 8 a.m. Usually there isn't any noise or evidence of a struggle. It's slightly more common in boys than girls. There are more boys than girls born overall, but still, even taking that into account, there's still a higher rate among male infants than female infants. The peak incidence is around two to four months of age. And then the rates really varied within even developed countries from one in a thousand to one in 10,000. So it's pretty wide still. Globally in 2015, there were about 19,200 deaths. And this was down from 1990 where there were 22,000 deaths globally. So even though there's a greater population, there are fewer deaths due to SIDS, due to some public health measures that we will talk about later on. In 2011, it was in the US, this was the third leading cause of death in less than one-year-olds. And there are some really interesting maps on the CDC that show rates across the US. And I know we have our friend from Canada here, but we will still probably end up talking <laughs> about the uh, American experience a little bit more with all the CDC data that is easy to find. The States that have higher rates include like Louisiana, Alabama, oh, yeah. Tennessee, West Virginia, Arkansas. Oklahoma, Arkansas, Wyoming, and Alaska. And then the states with lower death rates, California, Utah, Colorado, and I think those are the three lowest states. The rest of them are still a little bit. Vermont is... Is Vermont on the lowest? Vermont and D.C. have the lowest. Okay. Great. I am trying to look at a map and figure out what colors <laughs> look lighter, which is not the best way to do this, guys. I wrote the states down. <laughs> well done. Yeah. Nicole did it the right way. <laughs> and when you look at rates over time, as we are able to identify accidental suffocation by things like, Nicole will talk about this a little bit later, but scene investigation and things like that. So instead of oh, this is a, we don't know how this child died, but now we can say, oh, well, we did a better scene investigation and they suffocated on bedding or something like that. As these accidental suffocation rates are going up, the rates for SIDS diagnoses are going down, which makes sense because some of these things that we called SIDS, we're now able to define what they are. And this, there's a few other things that fall into this category as well. So SIDS rates will hopefully just keep going down because we'll get better at our jobs, for lack of a better way to put it. And we'll you know, not have anything that's undefined anymore. In terms of race, it is definitely very variable across races. It's lowest in Asian and Pacific Islanders, where it's about 20.3 deaths per 100,000 live births. And it's the highest actually in American Indian or Alaskan natives, where it's almost 120. So it goes from 20 to 120 per 100,000 live births, which is you know, a six-fold increase just dependent on the race, which is insane. Um, within that, so Asian Pacific Islander is 20-ish. Non-Hispanic whites are about 55. Non-Hispanic black is about 100. And American Indian Alaskan Native is about 120. So it's pretty 
wide range there. And then in terms of our sudden unexplained infant deaths, about 20% of these end up being from like infection, genetic disorder, heart problems. And there's a small amount of SIDS deaths that are non-diagnosed child abuse, like intentional suffocation and that type of thing. So there's a pretty wide range and there's a lot of stuff that we definitely still aren't good at identifying yet, but you know, we are slowly getting better at identifying other causes. So SIDS rates are going down a bit, which is good. So the only other thing I wanted to add was you mentioned in developed countries. Mm, yeah. So I noticed when I was looking for global statistics that I wasn't finding a lot of information. And I actually found this one paper, Sudden Infant Death Syndrome, an Unrecognized Killer in Developing Countries. And the author, Akena Nadu, she did this literature search. She's Nigerian. And she only found two Nigerian studies in her search about sudden infant death syndrome in that country. And they were limited to the sleeping positions, which we'll get into a little bit. So she was talking about reasons why in developing countries it hasn't really been a focus. Um, and a lot of it has to do with cultural things. So a lot of the deaths go undocumented due to cultural beliefs that SIDS may be caused by something else, for example, witchcraft, which we had an episode on. So the family thinks it's due to this cause that is explainable and they won't bring the child to the hospital so it won't get recorded or reported as a death, um, a sudden infant death. And then also in a lot of these developing countries, they don't have a lot of diagnostic facilities like toxicology and microbiology and autopsy rates are generally pretty low also due to socio-cultural and religious factors. Um, and then even when an infant is presented to the hospital, there's often a lot of poor coordination between different agencies such that a death scene investigation, a proper death scene investigation doesn't really occur. And that's an integral part of making this diagnosis because it is a diagnosis of exclusion. So mm -hmm. all those scene factors, which we'll get into later are very important. So just a bunch of reasons why it hasn't really been studied, studied in developing countries, but not that it's not a problem in developing countries. It just hasn't been tracked very well because of all of these other things. So I think now we're gonna talk about some risk factors associated with sudden infant death syndrome. So I guess uh, we'll sort of break these down into the factors that are modifiable. So things that we can actually do and uh, have campaigns and interventions to help reduce the rates. And then we'll talk about some of the factors that, you know, we can't really control for. So a lot of the discourse with SIDS is around sleeping. And so prone sleeping has been recognized as a major risk factor for SIDS. So the recommendations are that parents should be putting their uh, infants uh, to bed on their back. A lot of this work has been sort of an association for a while, but the plausibility of it, causal association, um, has been sort of further strengthened and proven by the fact that countries that have had sort of sleeping education campaigns have seen dramatic decreases in SIDS rates. The U.S. is an example of that that has seen campaigns to reduce the prevalence of prone sleeping that has led to decreased uh, SIDS rates over time. Another other thing sort of related to sleep, its own risk factor, is soft surfaces and loose bedding. So the recommendations are around, you know, not to have many blankets in the crib and not to have really soft uh, mattresses because it increases the possibility that the infant could sort of get wrapped up and uh, sort of choke in their sleep. That includes things like stuffed animals too, right? Yeah, stuffed animals, toys. I think uh, the recommendation is for, you know, parents to put their infants into bed, just sort of, you know, just the blanket and, and the baby, no toys, no extra pillows or anything like that. The other thing that sort of talked a little bit about is overheating. And I guess this kind of goes into the, the bedding thing as well. So like too many blankets, um, high temperature in the room, uh, these sorts of things are thought to also be potentially related. Uh, I wasn't able to find a specific temperature or anything like that that they recommend for the room, but um, I don't know. I found one interesting thing where it said that this is actually kind of associated with cold weather because then p parents tend to bundle up their kid more, which then leads okay. to more overheating. So it was interesting because I think you think of like a hyperthermia death as like being a hot temperature thing, but yeah. because you're like, oh my God, my baby's going to get really cold. So like, let's put more layers on and then the baby overheats from that. So... Yeah, the thing I found interesting was in my reading, they've done studies with fans and they've shown that having fans in the room doesn't decrease the rate of SIDS though. So huh. they're like, 
not exactly sure why this like temperature thing is kind of a correlate if that sort of intervention mm. doesn't really help. Hmm. So I guess the other thing that um, we found in our reading was smoking. So maternal smoking during pregnancy um, is a risk factor for SIDS and almost sort of every epi study uh, that's been done on SIDS. It's sort of a sort of a prevalent theme that comes up. The other thing around sleep is the bed sharing. So it's thought to be related to infants being suffocated by an overlying adult or someone else in the, or another child in the crib. So uh, the recommendation is that infants sort of sleep alone um, and not and don't sleep in the same bed with the parents, which is sort of hard when you know young parents, new moms don't want to leave their their baby somewhere in a crib, even if it's in the same room. There's sort of a tendency to want to hold your baby and be with your baby at all times, but it's it's thought to be a risk factor bed sharing. The other thing we found was uh, preterm birth and low birth weight. Uh, so that's sort of modifiable in that uh, making sure that before the baby is born that the mom has good follow-up with either her GP or her obstetrician, good prenatal care, screening, diet, all those sorts of things to make sure that there aren't any complications throughout the pregnancy or any problems that could lead to a low birth weight or a preterm birth. One of the interesting um, things I found with that actually was I saw that it said infants born before 39 weeks gestation at a higher rate, mm. but 38 weeks is technically term. So it isn't even necessarily the term preterm. It's just kind of like the longer the baby cooks, the like more <laughs> preventative it can be to a certain extent, obviously. So I just thought yeah. it was interesting that they, the number 39 weeks was in there and it, which is obviously termed is defined as 38 weeks. So it's just kind of interesting. So medium rare baby is not a good baby. <laughs> 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 Cannibalism will be a different episode, but it's definitely. Yeah, yeah. The appropriate way to sous vide your baby. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> a little more um, for you guys on this Wednesday morning. I assume if you're listening to this podcast, you're okay with some morbid humor. <laughs> yeah, you probably, yeah. Dark humor is probably your thing. <laughs> I, I guess the other thing that, um, that I found uh, around things that people can actually do to sort of help prevent is there seems to be some protective effect with breastfeeding on SIDS. So I guess breastfeeding has a lot of positive protective effects, it seems like, but it seems to be helpful in SIDS. So if moms can do things to make sure that they're breastfeeding or um, if they're having trouble with it, seeing a lactation expert or getting some help with it is probably um, helpful and could help reduce the risk of SIDS. Yeah, one of the studies I'm going to mention a little bit later shows that in babies that were ended up being ruled out of SIDS, like they used to be called SIDS and now they're not, they found that they often had some kind of virus that they found via genetic testing. So, mm -hmm. and obviously breast milk can help prevent with some viruses and stuff like that. So I saw like two months of breastfeeding is significant to decrease the risk of SIDS. So, oh, that's super cool. So maybe it does actually have to do with that exact thing that protects you against some viral protection that you can't get with formula. I also had that the use of a pacifier has yes, been shown to okay. decrease the risk of SIDS. And one of the things I was reading even said that even if the baby spits the pacifier out pretty soon after you put them to bed, it's still shown to be protective for some reason. Um, yeah. Also, immunizations have been shown to help that if you can get essentially uh, diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis vaccines, they those babies that are immunized tend to have lower rates of SIDS. Speaking of vaccines, one of our other listeners, Erica, actually emailed and she wanted us to talk a little bit about vaccine-related death. Babies receive a lot of vaccines when they're between two to four months old, which is also the peak age for SIDS. And... Uh, because of this timing, a lot of people have wondered whether vaccines are a risk factor or a cause for SIDS. Um, however, there have been multiple studies that have been done that have shown that vaccines do not cause and are not linked to SIDS. Um, and the kind of re association between the timing of SIDS and the timing of the vaccines is the same reason why a lot of people think that autism and vaccines are linked, but association is not causation, everyone. So as far as we know, vaccines are actually, as Jordan said, protective. Um, one study found that there was a 50% decrease in risk of sudden uh, infant death syndrome with immunization. And there's actually a 
vaccine adverse event reporting system. I didn't know about that, but they track adverse events in relation to vaccine. And a big study looked at data from that um, reporting system from 1997 to 2013, and they saw no concerning patterns and all of the main causes of death temporally related to vaccines were the most common causes of death in the U.S. population. So mm. no difference. So get your vaccines, people. Or give your <laughs> child. Give your <laughs> also get your own vaccines. If you're 18, your parents didn't vaccinate you, go get your vaccines. You probably survive SIDS by 18, but... Hope? Yeah. Yeah. Sarcasm, sarcasm, <laughs> sarcasm. <laughs> You've definitely survived SIDS. Oh, I'm a SIDS survivor. <laughs> T-shirts. Is that too insensitive? Nope. <laughs> oh my god. That's gonna be the first merch that we sell in our store. The demand would be high. The or the dem the population is high. Yeah. <laughs> Survivor. Yeah, and Jordan touched a lot on the non-modifiable risk factors. So like the boys more often to happen. Specific races and ethnicities. Two um, to four months. So now I'm gonna start the discussion on the role of the medical examiner slash coroner in the investigation of um, sudden unexpected infant deaths. So the first step in all of these types of deaths is the scene investigation. And it's probably the most important thing out of all of the things. And there have been a lot of attempts over the years to standardize the way that these investigations happen um, to ensure quality um, and adherence to standards. Um, and the CDC actually has created guidelines and a lot of different training um, instruments for investigators. And they also have something called the uh, Sudden Unexpected Infant Death Investigation Reporting Form. And that has a lot of questions for the witnesses to help kind of standardize the important information that's needed in these cases. Of course, even with these guidelines, the ability to adhere to them is pretty variable, which we talked about with the heterogeneous nature of death investigation in the United States and the relative lack of resources in for the medical legal death investigation community. And the form itself is not a requirement, so some offices might have their own correlate or they might not use it at all. One of the things that I found really interesting in these types of investigations is the use of doll reenactment. It's very strongly promoted by the CDC, and they had some very interesting photos in the pediatric, unexplained pediatric deaths book that I used for the majority of my research. And the book that we're talking about is Unexplained Pediatric Deaths. It came out really recently, and everybody who is a member of the National Association of Medical Examiners or name, which we've mentioned before, got a free copy courtesy of the Sudden Unexpected Death in Children Foundation. So super it's a very nice good of them. Book. Yeah. It's actually a very fun read. I got so into it I read like half of it today. <laughs> She's not lying. I've seen her read about a quarter of it already today. <laughs> Amazing. I guess maybe just to go back a little bit to you were talking about like the standardization. Yeah. Something that I that sort of stuck with me, I forget who said this to me, but it was it had to do with uh, scene investigation, not specific to SIDS, but in general. I had, I think it was a forensic pathologist in Calgary say to me, you know, the same way when someone walks into the eMERGE with chest pain, you have an approach, you have a systematic approach that you go through, certain questions that you have to ask and certain tests that you have to order um, in order to come out with sort of your diagnosis to make sure they're not having a heart attack. But I guess a lot of people don't think of death as a diagnosis, I guess, or they don't think of death investigation as medicine as I, as I think where the problem kind of lies. And you kind of need to have a systematic approach for what you're doing and how you're doing it to make sure that the conclusions you're drawing are going to be right. Yeah, for sure. That makes a lot of sense. I like that. I actually went to a scene investigation. It was a fairly long, not long, but it was several days, I want to say, after the forensic pathologist just wanted to see the scene himself. Mm. Um, so when I was shadowing at the San Joaquin County Coroner's office, I went to the scene with him and he was asking the family more about the sleeping situation. So it was kind of interesting to have the opportunity to see that. I know that one of the time, one of the months that I was at the SFME, they took pictures of the dolls and they had like 
parent placed the doll and they took pictures of, with it, of it with the scene investigation. So in the morning when we went through all the cases, we actually got to see where they put the dolls oh, and wow. how they were placed. Yeah. And like oh, cool. where they put them last night and where they woke up in the morning and all that other good stuff. So like that's something that's definitely happening now. Mm, very cool. Picture tells a thousand words, right? Picture tells a thousand words? Yeah. Picture tells a thousand words. It yells them straight at your face. <laughs> yes. Uh, I give up. <laughs> Drink your whiskey. <laughs> autopsy should be performed in all sudden unexpected infant death cases. And autopsies are most useful for identifying infectious causes of death or undiagnosed congenital heart defects, which we talked about like two episodes ago. Mm-hmm. And in sudden infant death, they have a lot of specific recommendations for the steps that should be taken. The autopsy is like the steps in general are pretty similar to what we've covered in other episodes. But some important differences are that they highly recommend getting skeletal surveys. And these are a series of radiographs that image, a radiograph is an x-ray that image the entire body. Um, and it's to look for trauma and document the extent and age of any injuries. And it's especially important for the extremities because we don't routinely dissect down in order to look at bone injuries in the extremities. So in the book that we were talking about earlier, they actually have a list of core autopsy components that should be done in these cases. Um, and then the bare minimum they have for things like ancillary studies, so extra testing on top of the autopsy, are to do vitreous fluid analysis, which is that fluid in your eye, to look for electrolyte abnormalities and glucose disturbances. Also performing full toxicology, um, but as opposed to adults, where it's t generally to look for drugs of abuse and children, you should do specific panels for over-the-counter medications, which we don't always necessarily test for. Um, and then also microbiology is super important in infants because they can have undiagnosed infectious diseases that can cause sudden unexpected death. And then also in all of these cases, they recommend um, if you're not going to perform genetic testing at the time or shortly after autopsy, you should at least save specimens. So a tube of blood and then a small piece of tissue that you store in a freezer for potential future genetic testing. I guess the last thing I thought was interesting in this book was that they said that communication should be considered the final step in the autopsy. Um, and not just communication of the final results, but also the preliminary results. And that these cases are very sensitive. And a lot of the issues families have with interactions with the medical legal death investigation system in these cases are around communication. So like they cited studies where sometimes the families are notified of only the final results and it can take months and months for those to come back and it's done via mail so there's no opportunity for them to ask follow-up questions yeah that's not okay mm -hmm. yeah um so they recommend communicating within 48 hours after the autopsy what your preliminary findings were and then giving the family a timeline so they know what to expect regarding the investigation i like that and then calling them with the final results and not even calling like really what families want is a face-to-face -face interaction. So calling is their second recommendation if you can't do face-to-face, -face, but really making that space to be able to communicate with the families face-to-face -face is super important in these cases. That's great because that's one of those things that people think of the medical examiners as kind of these faceless people that do their job behind this curtain and we don't really exist and we, you know, we're not people per we're, we're anti-social people and <laughs> yeah. we don't communicate in that kind of thing. But one of the, our biggest jobs is to communicate and that's a good chunk to families. It's also to juries and that type of thing. And communication is such a big part of this job that people kind of just think of us as this like in the basement, in the cool, dark place <laughs> with the bodies. Um, yeah, and there's very just, dim. Exactly. <laughs> Which is, to be fair, your baseline state is all, as many lights off as possible. True. Although if I'm doing an autopsy, I want all of the lights That's on true. so I can see the details <laughs> and true. not accidentally cut myself. And so the zombie body doesn't come up and get you. Right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Ground zero for zombie apocalypse is the morgue. Have to be on my toes at all times. Exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah, I just thought it was interesting the way that they phrased it as communication should be considered a step in the autopsy. I really liked that and I hadn't thought of that before. And I would want to carry that forward, not just with pediatric deaths, but with all deaths, like making sure I'm communicating with all the appropriate people. Have you guys been part of or seen any like family meetings like enemies had or anything like that? Um, I don't know if I've done a family meeting. I've done like some detective in um interactions but yeah i've done meetings with lawyers yeah and investigators but never with the family like Mm. in fact there was going to be a family meeting when i was on rotation but um uh dr moffett the site supervisor for that rotation said that she didn't want me to sit in on the family because it's a very sensitive topic and i mean i think if i were a fellow it would be more like this is part of the training that yeah. we have to learn. But as a resident, it seems like it would be more intrusive to the family to try to explain having a trainee there. I feel yeah. like it's like in medical school, they teach you how to give bad news. Like yeah. one of our biggest thing with, you know, how to tell somebody they have cancer or something like that. And I feel like this is our equivalent of that. It's the, this is how your child died, which is probably mm-hmm. the hardest thing you're going to tell somebody. Yeah. There were some interesting studies that I saw around genetics, as we talked about in our two episodes ago, about long QT, yeah. or about sudden cardiac death. Long QT is one of the causes of sudden cardiac death, especially in babies that they don't know have it yet. And so there was a study, Liebrix, Ackerman et al., that looked at hundred and over 100 SIDS cases. They had 102 in their final actual data points and they found that 13 of these kids had significant mutations that were associated with SID. So they ended up finding 60 cases that had some type of variant in these cardiac arrhythmia genes and Mm. that 13 of the 102 were significant enough to blame quote unquote for that what was called a SIDS death. So you know that's over 10% of this study of SIDS cases, they were able to find a cause genetically just on the cardiac arrhythmia genes. So you could even look at like metabolic syndromes or anything like that, but just for cardiac arrhythmia genes, it was over 10% of the people that they had actually, um, that they sequenced. (laughs) So over 10% of the genomes that they sequenced for the cardiac arrhythmia genes, they found something significant. So I thought that was, just proved how important that was. There's also was a study out of Italy that took a strict set of criteria on SIDS deaths in 2014. So they had 17 cases before 2014 that they had worked up in their normal way. And then after 2014, there was some law that was passed in Italy and it applied strict criteria to these autopsies, which included things we've talked about. So getting a good family history of the baby and family members, getting good clinical history. So what's happened in like the week before death and what happened before birth, as you were talking, Mike, earlier about preterm babies, getting that good history and knowing what's going on. At autopsy, making sure that they look at all organs, both grossly and under the microscope, save frozen specimens for molecular, do routine talks, which apparently wasn't something they were doing before. And they distinctly mentioned sedatives and stimulants. Mm But I guess also over-the-counter things make a lot of sense. And then doing molecular for those viral pathogens. And prior to that, 94% of the cases that they looked at, 94% of the 17 cases that they had, they still called SIDS. One of them they they identified as a lymphocytic myocarditis, but 16 of the 17 were still unexplained. After Mm -hmm. that came into effect, there were 19 cases and... 11 of them they were able to rule as something else so it said that histology found causes on all 11 of them and that eight of those 11 they found viruses in either one virus or two viruses and that none of the cases that histology didn't find something on none of them had any virus on board so it was interesting that the only ones that had a cause had virus so that might be something that is significantly associated and seems to be from this. But again, it's a small study. Um, so I thought it was really interesting that they went from before these strict criteria, 94% were still called SIDS, 
but after the strict criteria was in place, including scene investigation, family history, a good autopsy, it dropped to only 42% of cases that they would have called SIDS. They still called SIDS. Huh. So it really just proved to me how important a good scene investigation and a good autopsy is in identifying some of these causes that I think are really important to know. Yeah. So one of the big things with doing these thorough investigations is being able to say that a death is in fact, SIDS or not, family members obviously want to know why their infant has passed away. And having a diagnosis of even if it is just SIDS does help family members sort of move on and they're able to sort of know what happened. I guess recently something that I found sort of, I guess, mostly through media discourse has been around some family members have been concerned the way these deaths are handled sometimes. For example, there is some variation in terms of how people practice and how people diagnose SIDS. The the sort of book that we were talking about, The Unexplained Pediatric, Pediatric Deaths, that um, a lot of us just got a copy of, does have sort of strict criteria for uh, when SIDS should be used as a diagnosis. But I think uh, something that we've talked about as a group is that there is variation in how people do this. And sometimes certain forensic pathologists or coroners will sort of just call a death undetermined and they won't use the term SIDS. Uh, whereas other people might be a little bit more liberal with the term. And then there's people that sort of fall in uh, the in-between category. And I can think of a specific sort of video that I watched about a family member somewhere in Canada who was frustrated that the report that the final diagnosis they got or in the report said that the death was undetermined and they did not use the word SIDS and they didn't want to use the word SIDS. And what this person was advocating for is, you know, they kind of wanted something a little bit more. They wanted a diagnosis and they wanted to know why the infant died. And it's sort of a tough balance because you, you want to be accurate in what you're saying. If, if you don't know why an infant died and it doesn't meet strict criteria, you don't want to call it something that it's not. But at the same time, I think the reason why we do these really thorough investigations is because at the end of the day, we want to communicate what we think happened to the family members. And some people really want to have a firm diagnosis or something that makes sense for them to be able to move on. Yeah. And in the book, they talked about part of that is that these families find support groups and without having that official diagnosis, it's a little bit harder for them to find the community where they should go to for that grief support. Mm -hmm. And also undetermined kind of still carries a certain stigma that SIDS does not. As I guess a lot of people associate undetermined with like the circumstances are still kind of suspicious. So parents yeah. can still feel kind of blamed. Whereas SIDS is there was really no reason or no reason that we could determine at this time, which is mm -hmm. like the other thing that families think about is if you couch them in the diagnosis of SIDS, then that means that their child's death can go towards research into what is actually causing these. So like maybe eventually mm -hmm. one day it can be determined why their infant died suddenly. Um, mm -hmm. But if it's labeled as undetermined, then it, it might not fall into those statistics where people are going back to look and see if they can in the future discover the reason why. Mm -hmm. It's it's interesting because it's a lot of it is sort of almost semantics and a political thing because we're really saying the same thing. We're kind of saying we don't know, but it's interesting how how few words can have such a big impact on what happens in terms of research and then how people feel about getting that information. Yeah, one of the chapters um, in the book was about how what we say on the death certificate kind of gets translated at the national level for research and it gets coded in this specific way so without mm. using these specific terms they don't fall into the same categories so mm -hmm. even though it all kind of seems pointless it matters at the public health level and which is why they're trying to get people to use the same terminology th through this book with their recommended diagnoses and I feel like this is also very relevant to the current situation with COVID in that people, again, I'll keep this very brief, but it's really important to determine if somebody died with COVID or from COVID. Yeah. Because yeah. some of these numbers and the way that we're identifying death rates from this virus are through vital statistics and through the death certificates. And it's really important for us to accurately determine what this cause of death is. And unless we can say definitively with COVID or from COVID, 
we're not going to get good numbers. And then if you throw it on the death certificate, it's like they also had COVID. Who knows what like the higher ups are going to code that as? Is that going to be a COVID death or is that going to be a non-COVID death? Yeah. So. And I guess it ties into like the sort of the inconsistencies with how we do things too, because, you know, we're comparing death rates in countries for COVID and probably for SIDS too. And even in our, even in Canada across provinces, the way we investigate death is different. So, you know, how can we really use numbers from different countries or different states that calculate these numbers and determine these numbers um, as equivalent? And can we even use, compare them? That's a really good point too, because I feel like a lot of what people talk about, especially because the U.S. tends to not like to think outside of our own borders. <laughs> we tend to be like, well, what if Tennessee documents different than North Dakota? But as you just said, it's a really important point. Like, what if Tennessee documents different than North Dakota does different than British Columbia? Like, that's still a really important designation that a lot of us can't get our head out of the sand in the U.S., I think, sometimes. <laughs> yeah. And we need to definitely think of the bigger picture here. So documentation is very important. <laughs> documentation yes. and standardization is yes. very important, which yes. lots of people fight against because it's like not the way that they've done it or, you know, but it's, you know, it's important for a reason. It is. So the last thing I wanted to mention about the role of the medical examiner coroner in these types of deaths is that um, after the autopsy, the data that we generate from the investigation of these cases is often taken to something called the Child Death Review Board, which we've mentioned in other episodes, and we're definitely going to have more detailed episodes on these later because there are a bunch of different kinds. But these Child Death Review Boards review, as the name implies, all to the, the cases of child death that happen in a certain jurisdiction. And a bunch of different specialists will sit on the board. So the medical examiner corner will often be involved, but also pediatricians in the community, social workers, people who have some sort of role in trying to prevent these deaths. And they do these comprehensive reviews in order to try to better understand what is causing the deaths in their jurisdiction to take action. And the last thing I think we wanted to mention, just to kind of end on a happy note as much as we can, <laughs> um, are some of the public health movements that they're really pushing to try to improve some of these outcomes that are really having some amazing benefits. So the first is called Back to Sleep. At least that's what it's called in the U.S. Where essentially they're pushing to get children, when you put them to sleep, especially at a very young age, to put them to sleep on their backs. And as Mike mentioned, don't stuff their beds with extra things. Don't put super soft blankets or super soft bedding. Firmer mattress, lay them on their back. Don't leave anything else in the crib besides maybe a pacifier in their mouth. Mm -hmm. And let them sleep because anything else you add is just going to make it worse. The more back sleeping, the lower rates of sudden infant death, which is telling, again, correlation doesn't imply causation, but likely is reducing the risk of infant death by getting kids to sleep on their back. And one of the arguments for causation and not just association is that the overall rates of child mortality were also going down at the same time. So it was like overall and the specific SIDS. Yes. One very specific country's movement on this, again, to stake ourselves out of the U.S. for a minute, um, Finland does this really interesting thing that they've been doing for 75 years that arguably helps, but either way is just a good thing to do for expectant mothers, is they give all expectant mothers this box of stuff to help you with your baby when you first take them home. And you're like, what is this thing? I don't know what to do with it. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> you get... You're going to make a great parent. <laughs> make a fantastic parent. They'll survive. Cole's alive. It's fine. Um... <laughs> You get this cardboard box that's full of a bunch of cool stuff. So you get a mattress with a cover, you get sheets, you get a little baby sleeping bag and quilt, uh, you get some clothes, you get both, because it's Finland, you get both warm weather clothes and cold weather clothes. So they mention like socks and mittens and hats and a snowsuit. Sounds adorable. They also will do things to clean your baby with. So hooded bath towels, nail clippers, hairbrush, toothbrush, bath thermometer. 
um, because this was the article I read this in was a British article. It said nappy cream. Oh, love it. Instead of diaper cream, nappy cream. Nappy cream uh, sounds like what you rub on the baby's face to make them fall asleep <laughs> faster. You will never yeah. take care of my child. <laughs> Don't do that. I said it's wrong sounds you. like I wouldn't Don't actually. do that. <laughs> wow. Oh my goodness, Nicole. I'm learning so I, many things. I have already told all my friends that I don't think I can handle a baby and they can raise it and give it back to me when it's six or seven and has a personality and can talk. Yeah, that's fair. Um, <laughs> leaving all that in. They also have a cloth nappy set or diaper set, some picture books, teething toys. I like this bra pads and condoms to make sure the mom is comfortable and to make sure you don't have another kid too soon. Love it. Love it. <laughs> it was great. Also, most importantly in this baby box is the box itself. And I say that because one of the biggest things I'm going to talk about in a second is co-sleeping. You really want the infant to have somewhere on their own to sleep. So that mattress and the mattress bedding and all that other stuff. You take the box, you put the mattress in the box, and the baby has a box to sleep in. And they might grow out of it pretty quickly, but at least for the very beginning, when you're trying to figure stuff out and, you know, get your two feet underneath you again, you at least have something. And the last thing I wanted to say about that was apparently you can either take the box or you can get money, hmm. which in 2013, they got about 140 euros. But apparently the box was worth the box and all the stuff in it was worth way more than 140. So almost all mothers still just took the box. Yeah. Mm. And this was started because in 19... I said 1903s. In the 1930s, <laughs> Finland's infant mortality rate was really high. About 65 in a thousand infants died. And maybe the fact that, you know, medicine got better throughout time, and it could be other things as well. But the infant death rate really started dropping pretty quickly once they started implementing this. Uh, it started off with just being low-income mothers, and it ended up being everybody got it. So it's really something that, you know, even if it doesn't help a ton, it definitely doesn't hurt yeah and it's a great social program to help somebody when they are at their most vulnerable arguably yeah oh finland well i done. like that um and then the last public health thing i'm gonna mention and i'm gonna try to mention this briefly because i know that this is uh controversial very controversial um is co-sleeping a lot of organizations including the american academy of pediatrics recommends not co-sleeping and by co-sleeping, I mean sharing the same bed with your infant, especially in the first three months of life, which is where the highest risk. This is worse when the caregiver is using drugs or alcohol or smoking. Not too surprisingly, they don't know what's happening. They roll over, could roll over on baby. The American Academy of, pa of Pediatrics recommends room sharing without bed sharing, which I really liked. So put the baby box next to the bed and sleep in your own bed. Or for that matter, put the baby box on the other half of the bed so they're protected from you. And they've shown that this reduces the risk by up to 50% by not sharing your bed. So I know that when I was in Vermont, there was at least one case where somebody suffocated their child by rolling over on them. That was a case when we were able to say that it wasn't a SIDS case, but there are other cases where it's been called SIDS because it can't really be proven that the baby suffocated, but they were co-sleeping with a parent. Yeah, that case that I was talking about when we went to the scene, the, the parents were co-bedding and looking at the bed, the medical examiner believed that it was probably an accidental suffocation yeah. due to co-bedding. And I totally understand you're exhausted. You just breastfed. You want to put the baby down and you want to go to sleep, but... Maybe it's because I've now seen the outcome of one of these, but it, I feel like it's more scary to share the bed than vice versa. It's also sometimes a cultural thing, which yes, is why it's controversial. Yeah. There are some cultures where it's seen as normal and right to sleep with your baby. Yeah. And, and I don't know if you guys got to this part, but in the history section, uh, they had this machine that they created <laughs> during the Renaissance called the Arc. Cuscio, Arcudio, Curcio? Oh, yeah. Yep. Um, but it was designed so that the mom or the person breastfeeding the baby, if it was like a, what is that? What was it? Milkmaid? No. The nursing? Nursemaid? Nursemaid. Whoever was 
co-sleeping with the baby and breastfeeding them <laughs> this wooden frame that the mom or breastfeeding person lays in and then it has these like cutouts for your boob <laughs> so you put the boob in it so the infant can still reach your boob to breastfeed while you're sleeping but it says in here there was even a place for her to comfortably position her breasts and all i could think was this wooden frame does not look no, it comfortable doesn't. that is a very very stretched use of the word comfortable. it would also apply that your breasts are big enough to like make fall over that wooden slat or do you like go on the, or do you just go on the side like i don't really or is it meant to be like <laughs> Well, I think the I think the baby go in the middle of it. No, no, no. The baby goes on the outside of it. The mom is inside of it. Where's her head go? I think. It's no, so... are you sure? Oh. The baby might be on the inside. Baby might be on the inside. You're right. And then, cause like it's by the head, it's up top. I think baby goes on the inside. Yeah, I think the 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 wooden barriers for the baby. Okay, no, that makes way more sense. <laughs> yeah. And that would explain why there are two, because then the nursemaid could sleep on either side. Yeah. 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 Either way, still uncomfortable looking. <laughs> yes. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Well, you, yeah you, you, yes. You wouldn't want that in your bed, probably. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say something about mood killer. You don't want another yeah. child that soon anyway. <laughs> yeah. But if it's the nursemaid, it's not going to stop that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So this is one of those topics that is inevitably going to be controversial because everybody's going to say that there's no way I can do that to my child and et cetera, et cetera. But hopefully as autopsy techniques improves over time, we can get better at identifying causes and we will have less SIDS diagnoses and we'll have more definitive diagnoses. So step one, thank you so much, Mike, for joining us all the way from Canada. <laughs> thank Zip. you for having me. Let me join you guys. Yeah, it was really fun to be able to coordinate this and yeah. record an episode with somebody that's I mean, I love you, but it's it's fun to have other people also. <laughs> Thanks. Fair enough. Uh, and so with that, we're going to say our social meds. So if you liked this and any of our other episodes, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. It's how other people find us, and we get boosted up on the various podcasting platforms. You can visit our website at deadmendutelpodcast.com, where we link to all of our sources in our episode guide. On Twitter, we're at deadmendu. On Instagram, we're at the Dead Tell Tales. Our Facebook page is Dead Men Do Tell Tales Podcast. Um, and as always, you can send us an email through the website or directly to uh, the Dead Tell Tales at gmail.com. And our opening theme music is Introducing the Pre Roll by Lee Rosevere, who you can find on SoundCloud. So thank you, Mike. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. And don't go sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and vaccinate. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everybody. And thank you, Mike.